1: Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, good morning. Welcome to Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter at Joy Keys. Also check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. You can also email me on Saturdays with Joy Keys at Hotmail.com. I want to let you know you can check the shows out on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, as well as here at Blog Talk Radio. I hope you have enjoyed them, shared them with friends and family, and and learned something in the process. So today, I am speaking with an award-winning attorney and entrepreneur focused on social impact investing. She is dedicated to transforming the criminal justice system and has won freedom for numerous clients serving life sentences. For federal drug offenses, seven of whom received executive clemency from President Barack Obama. Brittany has founded several nonprofits and social enterprises such as the 16 Capital Partners, Milena Rain LLC, the Buried Alive Project, and Girls Embracing Mothers. She has earned many honors including being named one of America's most outstanding young lawyers by the American Bar Association. Good morning, Brittany K. Barnett. Good morning. Thank you so much for agreeing to do the call. I know you're very busy. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So you wrote this book, A Knock at Midnight, and it is title it's a memoir, but you also have other people's life stories in there. Let's start with why did you decide to write a memoir? Talk to the audience about that.
0: I wrote the book to tell the truth. I wanted to tell the truth about racial injustice that bleeds through the nation's criminal legal system. I wanted to tell the truth about people, you know, the heartbeats that are locked in America's cages and really just show their heartbeats. They are mothers, their fathers, their sons and daughters and they just all possess this human ingenuity that this nation needs to thrive. And I didn't set out to write a book, but my clients really encouraged me to to really share our stories with the world. You know, and I, I like to always add this third reason that I wrote the book. And that is for young girls of color in the South. I grew up in rural East Texas and I just am hopeful that young girls of color in the South can read the book and see themselves in me and know to dream their biggest dreams.
1: Yeah. You um, talk about in the book, um, watching um, the Cosby show, which before all the drama happened was like, you know, a great show Um and Felicia Rashad's character. Um, but in real life, you were able to meet someone. Her name was Krista Brown Sanford. Talk to the audience about her and her impact on your life. Yeah, Krista, I always wanted
0: to be a lawyer. Like you said, I wanted to be Claire Hustle from the Cosby Show. Unfortunately, growing up in rural East Texas, there aren't many lawyers at all. And there certainly aren't any lawyers who look like me. And for whatever reason, that dream of becoming a lawyer kind of just seemed out of my league, you know. And in hindsight, I realized it's because I didn't know any lawyers. And so I went to college and studied accounting. But that dream always was in the fringes of my mind. And I was working for Coopers. I graduated college. I was a certified public accountant, and there was a law firm in the same building as our offices called Baker Botts. And I went on their website, and the cool thing about law firms is you can see the photos of the lawyers who work at the firm. And so I went on their Mm -hmm. website and just started scrolling, and the first black woman attorney I saw was Krista Brown Sanford. And I didn't know her from a woman on the moon, you know, and I just sent her this (laughs) random email. I told her that, um, you know, we worked in the same building, that I was wanting to go to law school, and I asked if she would meet me at the Starbucks. There was a Starbucks downstairs. And she agreed. And she met me downstairs. Joy and I can honestly say she took my hand in that Starbucks nearly 15 years ago, and she has never let it go.
1: That's where I almost cried in the book. I was like, oh, my God, because like you said, if you, you didn't see any black women lawyers, and this woman just came and just opened herself up, like I could feel, I felt through reading in the book, like how her energy just, she just was just open with you and just so willing, like an angel, you know, and I think that's what young people are looking for, angels to, to guide them, to show them possibilities, Um, You know, but before Krista, you know, in reading, you talk about your family a lot and the impact that they had. Now, both your parents were dealing with addiction, yet both your parents were extremely involved in your lives. I like your father. Talk to us about the impact that your father had um, on your life. Yeah, my dad had a
0: huge impact on my life. Both of my parents were teen parents. And, you know, looking back, now I realize we were growing up together. My dad and I, we were really close. We were always very close. And even though he was struggling with addiction at the time, he was always pouring into me. And, and he would write me these poems. And in these poems, they just contain gems that I'll still carry with me and that I will carry with me for a lifetime. And it was just him telling me that there was nothing I couldn't accomplish, that, you know, to put and keep God first and go after whatever it was I wanted, that my happiness wasn't open for debate, you know, really giving me that power of understanding that we can manifest our realities with our minds. And yeah. you know, I was a a, teen, a preteen, a teenager at the time. So my dad was barely thirty. You know, he was so young when I think about it. And he just really poured into me, like long before TED talks. <laughs> you know, those inspirational talks mm-hmm. we hear. My dad taught me that that power of intention.
1: Yeah, I love I love the you know his talking to you about visualizing and writing down the details. I mean, those are things that you read about in these executives, you know, how to become a best leader and all these books that people go out and buy. And your dad was just right there already pouring it into you when you were young. And then your mom, you know, she had her addiction. Yet before then she was also, I feel, showing you a a very positive example of, you know, being a a woman, um, trying to, you know, become a nurse. Uh, I think her grit. I think you got her grit from her. What do you think? I totally agree. I totally
0: agree. She is a trooper for sure. She was young, you know, early twenties, and she was going putting herself through nursing school with two young kids, my my younger sister and I, and working full time, and she did it. You know, she became a nurse. Unfortunately she developed an addiction to drugs that became much stronger than she was for a period of time and that ultimately led you know to her going to prison
1: Where were do you remember where you were when you found out she was going to prison and
0: and what were you feeling I do my mom had a drug addiction throughout my childhood, and I graduated high school, college, I was working, so I was twenty two years old when my mother went to prison, and I was in my apartment. It was the summer, it was like June two thousand and six, shortly after mother's Day, and we knew she had been arrested. She had caught one case in the year of two thousand and got placed on probation, but she could never pass their drug test. And so they would revoke her probation and then give her more and revoke her probation and give her more all because of these failed drug tests. And it got to the point where time was up. And I think this point she was in jail and we kind of figured, you know, they'll just revoke her and give her more probation. You know, she definitely has a drug problem and that didn't happen. They revoked her for sure. But this time, that revocation came with eight years in prison. And it was mm-hmm. gut, gut-wrenching, for lack of a better term. It was unbelievable. Because to me, as a young adult, I knew my mama had an addiction. I knew she needed help. And I knew mm-hmm. prison wasn't going to be the answer.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is one of the major issues um, with our society about who who is deserving of help and black and brown people historically in america have not been deserving of help they've been deserving of punishment because you know those people uh they're animals or they're not to be trusted um you know the the, the black woman is sexual i mean there's all these demonic you know versions of the black and brown people in america uh, latino people as well um Asian people have their um you know stereotypes that people make. But so your mom was put in jail because she had a drug addiction and um now how did she get out? Cuz that's in the story. We could talk about a little bit about that. She was there and you were expecting her to be there for 8 years. How were you able to get 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 her out?
0: She served her time. So in Texas there's parole. So
1: On an eight-year
0: sentence, uh, a person would typically serve about 30% of that time if it's a non-aggravated offense. And so she served two and a half years of her time, and she was granted parole.
1: Okay. Well, that's good, because from the other stories in your book, people don't get parole. I mean, one of the characters in the book had 16 life sentences. Um. Now, there's a major character in the book, Sharonda, and I say character, but she's not a character. She's a human being. She's a real person. Talk to the audience about who Sharonda is to you and how she entered your life.
0: Oh, Sharonda, she is such an amazing soul. I, after meeting Krista, just gained the confidence, you know, to attend law school, I was in law school at SMU in Dallas. And as I mentioned, I was an accountant. So I was gonna go practice corporate law. It was just a natural gravitation for me. And I was wanting to just experiment with different classes in law school. So I took a critical race theory course, a course that analyzed the intersection between race and the law. And that course changed my life. In the course, I decided to write my paper about the disparity in sentencing between powder cocaine and crack cocaine. And what that means is, a person could have 500 grams of powder cocaine, I could have only five grams of crack cocaine, and we're gonna receive the same sentence in prison. And this was all implemented through the 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act. It brought in mandatory minimums, it brought in this 100 to one ratio between crack and powder, and because of it, there was just a hugely disproportionate number of people of color in prison for drugs. And it's not lost on anybody, Joy, you know, especially now, but definitely in the late 80s, that more affluent white people were using powder cocaine and crack cocaine was running rampant through communities of color. And with Charonda, I was writing and kind of wrap my head around how this law even past, with such little legislative history. But I knew, again, what's so important to me is centering that human element. And I knew I wanted to tell real stories of real people who have been impacted. And mm. I did a Google search, a Google search one night in the law library, and Sharonda Jones' case came up. And she reminded me so much of myself. She was a black daughter of the rural South like me except that she was serving her 10th year of a life without parole sentence in federal prison for drugs. And I was in my second year of law school. Mm. And it was just something about her case that tugged at my soul. She had never been in any trouble before. She had never even had a traffic ticket and she was serving a life without parole sentence for a first
1: offense, felony or otherwise. Yeah. And she had um, several businesses. You know she she had the hair salon mm-hmm. um she was to do the small restaurant, she was on the go she was planning on doing another business and this came out now we do have to say though she did she did um sell drugs at one point in her life, but she stopped um it, it was a brief brief time and and she stopped and she didn't want to do it again and um Oh, my God. Oh, I hated Baby Jack and them. Oh, my God, Julian Baby Jack. I want to kill them. <laughs> I I was mad at them. I was. I was like, oh, this is a setup. This is a setup. This is a setup. I uh, didn't understand but, it. Mm-mm, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm, I, you don't know who they are, but if you get the book, I'm going to be giving away some copies of your book, A Knock at Midnight, um, so people want to follow me, at Joy Keys, also check me out on Facebook. Um, Saturday mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, I'm going to begin to some copies. But there's so many people in this book um, that turned on other people, and then those other people were put in jail, and that's what happened with Sharonda. And this whole thing of this drug conspiracy um, and ghost dope. Talk to talk to the audience about these issues, drug conspiracy ghost dope, and also stacking. That was another thing that did not help Sharonda's uh, case.
0: Definitely. At the height of the war on drugs, when we see this Anti-Drug Abuse Act put into play, we see all these sentencing enhancement tactics that prosecutors are using, and it starts with drug Conspiracy. So most of the people convicted of drug offenses on a federal level are charged with a drug conspiracy charge. And all that means, Joy, essentially, is that two or more people have an agreement to sell drugs. And that is a federal crime. It is a way for prosecutors to cast this broad net and arrest a lot of people, even though it's at the bottom of the totem pole. And in Sharonda's case, it was devastating. There's also Mm. this concept in conspiracy cases of ghost dope. That means that a person in a drug conspiracy case can be held accountable for all of the drugs, all the relevant conduct of this conspiracy, even though they don't even know the people. There could be one common denominator. And Mm -hmm. so in Sharonda's case, she... Sharonda was never found with any drugs. She was never found with any large sums of money. There was no surveillance, yep. no drug buys. Sharonda essentially was a drug mule between two drug suppliers, one in Dallas, one in Houston, and she would get paid for her trip between Dallas and Houston for these drug suppliers. And because of this ghost dope concept, though, the – Drugs that Sharonda was held accountable for, it all came based solely on co-conspirator testimony. And these co-conspirators, oh. oddly enough, who testified against Sharonda were the drug suppliers. They yeah. were they were familiar with the system. Sharonda was not. She opted to utilize her constitutional right to go to trial. They pled guilty, and they testified against Sharonda. And so the quantities they were testifying that Sharonda Jones trafficked for them is what she was held accountable for. And it was so infuriating that even the major drug supplier out of Houston who had admitted to trafficking in hundreds of kilograms of powder cocaine, the fact that he testified against Sharonda and by the time I came across Sharonda's case 10 years later, he was already free. And she was serving a life sentence. And as we, we mentioned, you know, there's no parole in the federal system. My mother was in state prison, so she had this parole option, but there's no parole in federal prison. So now you have Taranda, who'd never been in any trouble before, serving the same amount of time in prison as the Unabomber. And they also
1: put her mom away, who was a quadriplegic. I could not. I was like speechless when I read that part. I I, I was like, "Are you kidding me?" It was horrifying. <laughs> it it was so many. It, it was horrifying. There's some horrifying stories in this book, Men Mani, but there's a lot of beautiful stories. So I don't want to. The book is not all bad and sad. There's a lot of beautiful stories of hope and triumph um, in in this in the story. Um, so so it's not just all bad. One of the things that came out of you, your are getting into working with women in prison and and men in prison who who, who are lifers, Jim, um, talk about your organization, gem and and what that means and who it impacts.
0: Oh, Jim is my baby.
1: Jim stands for Girls
0: Embracing Mothers, and I actually started that nonprofit almost ten years ago after experiencing the incarceration of my own mom. And through Girls Embracing Mothers, we work to empower young girls and mothers in prison. We've partnered with Texas Women's Prisons for the past eight years now, taking girls to visit their moms in prison every first Saturday of the month. The prison gives us extra hours to visit with the moms. They let us bring in food to eat lunch with the moms. And we do art therapy and just always cover curriculum, you know, that revolves around critical life issues and, and through that program you know i really wanted to use what my sister and i have went through with the incarceration of our mom on any given day there are over two million children in this country with an incarcerated parent and a lot of people don't know it joy but women are the fastest growing incarcerated population the number of women in prison has grown 700 percent in the past 40 years mm. And eighty percent of those women are mothers, and it's definitely devastating to have any loved one go to prison, but it's, it is
1: a primal wound when it's your mama. It's something different Mhm, mhm. And how did you deal with this trauma? because you speak about trauma in the book several times, and you talk about your how it affects you, how it affected your sister. What do you see in these girls? What are some some of the top three things that may be happening to these, these girls because their mom is in prison? You know,
0: there's so many nuances to it. There's this shame and stigma that just comes with incarceration in general that young girls feel when their mothers are incarcerated. There's also a guilt almost of having to have your young mind process, you know, that you didn't do anything wrong. You know, and, and it also comes with just disruption of home life. Many times the mother is the primary caregiver, and so when the mother is incarcerated, it disrupts the, the family and the home, and children are having to stay with grandparents or or other relatives. And, you know, it's just imagine, you know, you're a young girl, nine or ten years old, just as full of potential as any. And then imagine that your mother is incarcerated and that you feel there's no one there that can understand that. And so Girls Embracing Mothers provides just this, this a true safe space for intergenerational healing. And the best thing about the program, I feel, is, is the shared experiences, being around other girls who are going through the same thing and knowing,
1: you know, that
0: there is life.
1: Talk to the audience about what is clemency and how you were able to get, I believe it's 16 years now since Donnell was one of your first uh, people that were you were able to get out on clemency. What is clemency and, and, and how does that work? Clemency to me is
0: where justice meets mercy. It is an exclusive power granted to the President of the United States through the Constitution and it's... The president sold power and I began doing clemency work years ago and it really was the last fight at the apple for many people, including Sharonda, including my client Donald Clark, who had been sentenced to thirty five years for his first ever offense, uh, for drugs. And it was when President Obama was in office. So really taking that last bite at the apple because there were no avenues of relief left in the court and it, it was really a chance for me to try to humanize my clients to show that mm-hmm. they are truly deserving, you know, of this mercy and they have served a lot of years in prison and they're much more beneficial to, to us, the community, their families themselves as free people.
1: The crazy thing, though, you had initially started with Toronto, but Donnell was first. Um, You now have an organization called Buried Alive. Talk to the audience about what that is and and what are your goals with that organization.
0: The Buried Alive Project, we work to free people who were unjustly sentenced under these outdated federal drug laws. Today, we've helped free over 50 men and women who were serving just draconian sentences. And I co-founded the project with Sharonda Jones and my other Mm client Corey Jacobs who they were both serving life sentences and they both received clemency from President Obama and you know they knew they were leaving behind a lot of people who were just as deserving of mercy as they were and so we linked arms and now we work together to fight to free those who are still languishing behind bars and so we provide pro bono legal support um, by a team of lawyers to represent people that unlock people and potential.
1: Now, one of the cool things is Corey taught you how to meditate. Tell the audience about that. Talk to them about he did. What, 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 what does that mean for you to meditate and how he got you started?
0: Well, it's definitely a form of, of self-care that I
1: practice today. I
0: as I mentioned, was going to practice corporate law. So I did. I graduated law school. I went to work for a big law firm. I transitioned over in-house as a corporate lawyer to work on different mergers and acquisitions. And so I I was working a lot. (laughs) You know, I was moving billion dollar deals by day and working on cases like Corey's and Sharonda's by night pro bono. And Corey, taught me to meditate during this time to really help me ease my mind and center myself. And he was in a maximum security prison serving 16 life sentences, as you mentioned. And he taught me to meditate from there. And we would meditate at the same time every day, just anchoring on his freedom. You know, and I, I remember visiting Corey, the first visit with him and he was talking about meditation and he was telling me about how he had read that meditation could enhance that nature could enhance the meditation experience. But he hadn't seen a tree in years because the prison yard was surrounded by like this 12-foot wall and there were no trees. And I honestly, I just don't remember anything Corey said during the rest of that visit because couldn't move past the fact that he hadn't seen a tree. Mm -hmm. A tree. And I really, I left that visit really empowered and wanted to use my platform as a lawyer to really promote the greater good. And not long after that visit, I, I resigned. I resigned from corporate law to truly follow my passion to transform this nation's criminal legal
1: system. Well, I think you are doing a wonderful job. I wish you so much success. And I'm going to be giving away some copies of your book. I want to let people know there is the Buried Alive org. their website. There's also gem which is girlsembracingmothers.org. You can check that out. And then Brittany also has her own website, uh, Brittany K. Barnett. Brittany, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and and just the honesty and truth uh, of shining the light on these horrible situations in prison in our society. Thank you, thank you.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thank you. All right, you have a great weekend, okay? You too. Okay, all right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Again, follow me on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. I'm going to be giving away some copies of her book. Uh, Stay tuned. I'm going to be speaking with people from Philadelphia about the pool project. Stigma may not directly affect you. But it harms the one in five Americans living with mental health conditions. Which prevents millions of people from seeking help. So do yourself and everyone a favor. Go to CureStigma.org and get tested for stigma.